0: What does it mean to live a Christian life? What does a Christian life look like? What defines or characterizes it? What is its nature? Well, we probably need to start by replacing the word Christian in the question, don't we? For many, a Christian life means living in a country where the majority of people identify as Christian and often go to a Christian church. Talk to many people through the years that would say, I'm Christian, I was born a Christian. And their sense is one of cultural identity. For others to live a Christian life means to participate in certain religious rituals now and then, or affirming certain Christian creeds and confessions. That is the Christian life as far as they're concerned. So we might want to remove the word Christian from the question and ask something like this, what does it mean to live as a follower of Christ? Or what does it mean to live in fellowship with the risen Christ as one's Lord and Savior? That changes the conversation a bit, doesn't it? Putting the question that way helps. And yet... Many Christians who enjoy a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ through trust in the Gospel are confused about what the Christian life is. Many of them think that it is really, in its essence, the pursuit of experiences. Mystical experiences. Whether in corporate worship or private devotion, the Christian life is all about chasing the next spiritual high, or witnessing the next jaw-dropping miracle. For others, living the Christian life is achieving physical prosperity as a follower of Christ. They would announce the gospel, believe in the gospel, and understand the gospel to be in part a way to get wealthy and maintain health. For others, the Christian life is all about creating family identity and unity. The Christian life is virtually indistinguishable from living together as a family. What does it mean to live a Christian life? If we do not answer that question biblically, at best, our spiritual growth will be stunted. In fact, we can be going about the Christian life with some sense of confidence and thanksgiving and really not being living a distinctly Christian life. At worst, it's possible that you've not actually been transformed by the gospel in the first place. And so a false understanding of what the Christian life looks like is really an evidence of a lack of relationship with Jesus Christ that is saving and real. One of the clearest, most succinct, objective answers to this question we find in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Familiar words to us, and they should be, and words that we should consider often. But before delving into these verses, I'd like to pause to consider their placement in the context of the book as we continue to work our way through it. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul defines develops and defends the Gospel. The good news of God's saving grace extended to sinners through Jesus Christ. What we have indeed celebrated here around this table. Paul insists that all have sinned in rebellion against God, breaking His law, and thus deserving of God's judgment against sinners. We make of ourselves a God We make of the things of this world a God, and we deserve His judgment. But Jesus died in the sinner's place to pay the penalty we deserve for sinning against God. By suffering judgment for His people, Jesus satisfied God's just wrath against us. Then, rising from the dead... Jesus secured our victory over death, giving His righteous standing before the Father to all of us who trust in Christ's redemptive work. By faith then we are saved and united with Jesus in His death to sin and in His resurrection life. Paul has gone to great lengths to make this point clear. We are not saved by our effort, by our innate goodness. We are saved by faith in what Christ has done. Then we are delivered by Christ as we place our faith in his deliverance. We are delivered by Christ not only from the penalty of sin, but also from its tyranny. Christ breaks the power of sin in the life of the believer. We have then in Christ a new identity, living in the sense in a new realm, under a new Adam, and his lordship. It is a total reorientation of life. And Paul has hit that fairly significantly in the sixth chapter of Romans, particularly. But as we think of chapters 1 through 11, many times commentators will describe that the essence here is one of indicative. That is, this is the truth. This is what has happened. This is what you must know. As we come to chapters 12 through 15, 16 uh, being its own a bit, and some of 15 ending up the book, but as we look at 12 through 15, the emphasis is on the imperative, the commands that flow from the truth that has been revealed in the book in the first 11 chapters. We were once slaves to sin in Adam. That is the indicative. That is the truth that God has revealed. Christ has come to rescue us from our sin. He has broken the bondage of sin. Now, chapter 12, here's what it means. Here's how that looks in the life of one who is truly a believer in union with Christ. So, on the basis of our identity with Christ in chapters 1 through 11, Paul exhorts us to live as Christians. And in these first two verses, in a sense, a hinge point. Drawing out the implications of chapters 1 through 11, particularly 5 through 8. But as a hinge point, looking back there and looking forward to what is coming in chapters 12 through 15, we find this classic statement of the Christian life. And it is played out for us here, it's put for us here in two imperatives. Two commands which we'll consider in turn. The first, submit your body to God as a living sacrifice. Submit your body to God as a living sacrifice. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We'll work through this verse for some moments here. But we see the necessary response. I appeal to you, therefore. That therefore is important. On the basis of all that God has done for us in Christ, chapters 1 through 11, especially 5 through 8, and maybe we could draw out here verse 36 of chapter 11 as well. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. When we consider the salvation that God has worked, in the salvation historical purposes that have played out in these first 11 chapters, Paul ends with a word of doxology, with a word of glory to God, and then says, therefore, I appeal to you, therefore. And how does Paul summarize all that Christ has done for us here in verse 1? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The mercies of God. Now, every false religion, every humanly contrived system of morality is structured to help people achieve or earn the favor of God. But the Christian faith starts in eternity past, and it is grounded in the mercy of God. God takes the initiative. He moves toward sinners with mercy, that is with unearned, undeserved favor. The mercies of God moving toward us, such that Paul says in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Verse 35, who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Who has done anything to deserve the mercy of God? It's His mercy. According to these mercies, then, the imperative, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Present your body as a living sacrifice. So the necessary response becomes a total response. Paul borrows here, obviously, Old Covenant sacrificial language. Under the Mosaic law, the throat of a lamb was slit. And the carcass was placed on an altar and the body was consumed. A sense of complete giving away. Life being taken. The punishment of sin. And life being given away in sacrifice to God. He takes that analogy, but now on this side of the cross, Christ fulfilling that sacrificial system, he says, now that's you. Not laying down your life and giving it away physically, but laying down your life in sacrifice, in a living sacrifice to God, giving your indeed your body to Him that way. When an animal was offered on the altar... There was no taking it back. You couldn't bring a lamb to the altar to the priest and say, after it's on the altar, I I I want it back. You were giving it away permanently. And so is the call of God upon our lives. We can submit our bodies to sin, to serve self and its purposes, to serve as instruments of unrighteousness, Romans 6 and verse 13. Or we can present our tongues, our hands, our ears, our eyes, our feet, our entire being to God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. This is vital. This is utterly necessary. Holy, that is separated from profane use, consecrated to the service of God. Like that lamb brought to the temple just like the other lambs. I mean, It had to be. It couldn't have a broken leg or something malformed on it, of course, but it's like the other lambs. But this lamb was unique because it was consecrated to God. That Christian is you, and that's the Christian life. My life is consecrated, never to be taken back, consecrated to God. Do you live your life before unbelievers in such a way that it looks like your life is devoted to God? If not, you're living out of sync with who you are in Christ if you're a genuine believer. And it would call upon us to repent, to turn from our self-orientation, from our identity with the world, and to turn to Him here and now in repentance and to say, my body is yours. I am consecrated to you by your grace. Acceptable to God. That recalls the re- aroma of the Old Testament sacrifice a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of God, so to speak. And this is our spiritual worship. It's a difficult phrase to interpret. We really don't have the English words to make it work from the Greek. But submitting my body to God is the only rational spiritually sensitive response of what Christ has done for me this is not a way of earning God's favor or paying him back that's not why I give him my body in consecration it's just the only possible response if you really see it we can never earn God's favor We can never give back to Him so that He's satisfied that we've had a fair exchange. It's all mercy to the sinner. But when we see that mercy, when we really perceive it for what it is, there is no other response but to give ourselves wholeheartedly away to the Lord. It's the right response to such amazing grace. I think by way of simple application, Christian, what's the Christian life? In part, it is this, to get up every morning and to pray something like this. Lord, my life belongs to you. I'm yours today. Take my words, the words I speak, take my actions, where I go, what I look at and touch so that I will bring glory to your name today. My presence in this world bringing glory to your name forever. May all that I do be lifted up to you as an offering of praise. Do we come into the Lord's presence as we awake each day with that spirit? I would encourage you even with a prayer like that. Before we do anything else, to say, Lord, I'm yours. The problem is that many of us get up and don't think like that. These thoughts really don't cross our mind. You might get up every morning with no thought that you belong to God, that His glory is what is all important in your life, that how you live out this day is not about getting done what you want to get done, achieving what you want to achieve, being seen the way that you want to be seen, accomplishing some goal, but is about bringing glory to Him. That's why you breathe. And it's good. But if we don't see our body displayed, our body placed at His disposal to be used in a way that pleases Him, we are living at very best a compartmentalized Christianity. That is, Christianity for you is in a box. It's when you go to church. It's when you read your Bible. It's when you take some time to pray. That's your Christianity kind of packaged up there. We've got, that is not the Christian life. The Christian life is to present your body as a living sacrifice to God at all times. I live and breathe for the glory of His name. And I've been given life to that end. And it is my joy. The second imperative is first expressed negatively, then positively. We could say it like this. It's almost like two sides of a coin. So we are to submit our bodies... In praise to God. Secondly, we are to renew our minds to conform to God's will. To renew our minds in conformity to God's will. Verse 2 Do not be conformed to the world. There's the negative. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let's focus on that negative first. Do not be conformed to this world. Paul speaks of conformity. To how the world thinks about life, what it values, what it promotes, what it wants. I think it certainly includes what the world does, but it goes far more deep than that. It deals with what the world wants, what it values, what it promotes. The Bible does not teach that everything that every unbeliever does is wrong, there is common grace. And unbelievers can do, in some sense, good and helpful things. But the Bible does repeatedly warn us to remember that we live under the pressure of this world's sinful mindset, epitomized by the give-me, please-me, honor-me orientation. That's how people get up in the morning. That's how this world arises and awakens to the day. Give me, please me, honor me. And all kinds of trouble comes when we don't get what we want in this world. Our world is led mostly by people anxious to promote Satan's lies and to serve Satan's cause, and so at every turn we face a world that promotes godless ideas about money about sex, about power and popularity, about self-worth and race relations and relations between men and women and child and family theories and work and how we look at it and on and on it goes. In every area of life, it is driven by the sense that I am to be honored, that I am to get my way, that God does not matter. And so at every turn, we face a world like this. What does it mean to live as a Christian? It means to not be conformed to that world. In everything that we think, in every place we go, how we live our life, we're not being molded into the world's way. One thing it means is to develop the discernment and the wisdom to detect the world's lies and to reject its fundamental values as they conflict with God's revealed will. To live a Christian life means that we do not permit the world to squeeze us into its mold. But we'll resist its godless philosophies, its immoral behaviors. The Christian life is not like a chameleon. The chameleon, that, whatever it lands on, it kind of turns that color. What a wonderful little creature, huh? It's not a good way to live your Christian life. I conform at school to those around me. I conform in the neighborhood to what's expected. I conform at work to sort of the the level of those around me. I conform in my family to be like everyone else to keep peace. That's the chameleon Christian, always changing colors. We're called here not to allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, to not be molded by those around us, by godless thinking and practice, but to be molded by Christ, by His Word to us. We've been delivered from the old order. We have been united to the new humanity in union with the new Adam, our Savior, Galatians Galatians 1.4 puts it, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Not to mold us by it, but to deliver us from it. So positively, that is negatively, don't be conformed to this world, but positively be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Transformed. It is a passive sense. A work that God must accomplish in us by his Spirit. Kind of like the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. There is a transformation that takes place from within. It's not external. that's causing that transformation to take place. It's something internal. And so it is with us. Where the Spirit of God indwells my soul, there is an internal transformation process that is taking place all the time. By the grace of God. Is being transformed by the renewal of our minds. Don't get too narrowed in there by just what we think, for the will really follows what we think to be best and beautiful. But it's the, it's the inner being being transformed to think God's thoughts, to reason God's way, to live according to his will. Now, notice here, Paul includes, I think, a discerning of God's will that comes not by reading and understanding the Scriptures alone, but by testing. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. That by testing. So let's see. I've got this enemy, and I want to kill him. Uh, What's God's will about that? Is that what's going on here? No, clearly we know what the Bible says, it is wrong to kill someone, it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to kill your enemy. we are to love our enemies. So, So I don't think that that's what Paul's talking about precisely here, though it certainly includes what the Scripture clearly teaches. But he says that we would know the mind of the Lord by testing, being able to discern what His will is. There are decisions we must all make about goals and practices and enjoyment and disciplines and choices, matters that God does not directly address in Scripture. I've run across a couple of Christians in my life experience that believed there was a verse for every situation. I have never seen the Scriptures twisted so badly to prove that theory. The Bible does not address every situation. You are not going to find a verse that proves you should do this and not this in every occasion. What we're looking at here, what Paul is pointing us to, is a renewal of the mind that tests, that weighs and considers and learns to think biblically about the choices and the matters in our life so that we learn to discern what the will of the Lord is. Not merely read it in the pages of Scripture. I'm not supposed to murder someone. I don't have to ask him what his will is about that. He's made it quite clear. But there will be areas where I must learn discernment. I need to learn to think in a biblical way and to determine what God's will is. So we'll face many decisions, and if you have the sense there's this neat box over here, God's will, and another neat box over here, not God's will, you're going to run into a lot of trouble we have to recognize we don't always know what God wants, but learn to think from the scriptures and how to renew our minds to test and discern what his will is. There'll be a level of caution there always, a level of humility there always, that we don't know precisely what God wants. I'm repeatedly humbled by the rust buckets in my driveway to not know what God wants (laughs) do you put new tires on that thing before it falls apart he's not gonna you're not gonna find a verse on that but as we learn to think clearly biblically about simple things like that but about obviously very difficult decisions in our life there are decisions that don't fit neatly in one box or the other So discerning what pleases the Lord is a lifelong process of learning what God reveals. Do you recognize that? Are you recognizing that? Are you seeing growth in your life that's saying, I'm learning to think biblically. I'm learning to make decisions that are wise in light of God's truth. I'm learning how to apply that truth to life's many decisions and dilemmas. I'm in fact seeing at times, there's times where hard decisions need to be made, but I'm seeing them as right. And there's other decisions that I'm making that I don't really know where to go, and I see the good fruit that comes of it. Growing in a discernment to understand what God wants. The goal, simply put, is to think as Jesus would think. To walk in step with the Holy Spirit. To pursue the will of God, namely what is good, it says here, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In God's sight and what should be in ours god's will is good it is acceptable it is pleasing to him and pleasing to us it is perfect that is it it is it is all that it should be it is complete i i think then that as we're learning to discern according to god's purposes according to what scripture reveals but then learning to put that into play it's something like learning to drive To drive a car. You you don't start by driving a car out on 35W at rush hour. I hope you didn't. You learn by driving in a parking lot. And then you graduate to driving out on on a quiet street. And then you work your way up to learn the skills of driving in a more difficult situation. I think on some level, that illustrates our growth in the knowledge of God's will and our discernment as we test what is right and good. We don't know everything that God wills intuitively and immediately. There is growth that is needed in our lives. So I speak particularly to young people, children living at home. Listen What your parents say. If there are godly, wise people around you in your church, listen to what they say about holy living and don't just write it off as an old person talking. Maybe they've failed to discern God's will on some things. Maybe at times your elders will get culture and the past all mixed up with what pleases the Lord. That may happen, but remember. They've walked with God for a while. They may have some things to tell you that you don't see yet. But in discerning the will of the Lord, particularly in matters that aren't crystal clear, listen, open your ears, be open to counsel and thoughts that they would have. It's likely that they've learned to discern the will of the Lord on some matters that are not clear to you yet. None of us is able to discern God's will in every moment or area of life. We should be lifelong learners, however, and we should grow increasingly adept at choosing words and actions and attitudes that please the Lord. And all of us as a church need to be learning what that is. How do I live out my Christian life? I give my body wholeheartedly to God. I am at your service as a living sacrifice, and I am renewing my mind in the context of God's people to learn to think and apply, not to be conformed by this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so, really, discernment is a mark of a maturing Christian. What does a Christian life look like? How do I live it? One of the evidences of it is that there is a continual discernment that chooses according to the will of God many times in opposition to the way our culture would counsel us. Please know that this discernment, though, I want to caution here. This is not the know-it-all who is self-assured about everything. This is not the man who sees conspiracies everywhere that he looks. Deserment is not the eschatology buff who thinks she knows the day of Christ's return because of what's showing up in the news. This is not that sour Christian who sees disaster and compromise everywhere, whether it's there or not. And yes, some Christians are endowed with a greater measure of this virtue than others could ever hope to attain. But the Christian life is a life of learning to discern right from wrong, truth from error, deception from grace, the world's nicely packaged poison from common grace. Learning to see the world through the eyes of God and through the eyes of His revealed word to us. We don't live like that, we'll pay the price. We will pay the price of our own folly. It will happen. You will do things, choose things, go places, accomplish things, meet people, establish goals, and they will cave in on you. Because you are operating in your own wisdom and it will prove empty. The Christian life says in humility, God alone knows the truth, and I'm learning to think according to His counsel and according to His Word. It's about finding pleasure and goodness and maturity in thinking biblically about a world in which we live our lives. So, I'm going to spend some moments here just in practical application further. But how do I... What does it look like to live the Christian life of transformed thinking, of renewing my mind, to test and to discern what is God's will, to live the life of goodness that He intends for those who have unsaved mates, for those who have lost a mate to death or to divorce? There's a way that our world wants you to think and will steer your thoughts in these trials. But renewed thinking says in the midst of such trials that God is good and He will provide. All is not disaster and gloom, but a loving God will teach me to walk in dependence upon Him. He will provide comfort, and I can serve God and others with hope as I wait for eternity to come those that are singles and lonely, dealing with the frustrations that you face in that condition, renewed thinking is so vital. This world will teach you a certain way. I just read an article here recently, the single individual laying out how her life can be made wonderful by her own ingenuity. And basically what it was, was she had deified herself. She didn't need anyone else. I love me and I'm happy. Not saying that everyone in the world thinks that. But that's a way of twisted thinking that can lead us down a wrong road and somebody in a place of frustration and loneliness can say, that's the answer. I'll find my satisfaction in myself. I'll come to enjoy my isolation. That's going to cave in. That's going to lead to great emptiness someday. But singles, lonely, and in frustration with their situation in life can know on the renewed thinking that God has revealed that God is good and He will never abandon me. That I am freed by my situation, to serve others and live a life of devotion to Him. And that is good. As Paul lays that argument out in 1 Corinthians 7, we live in, I hate to say it, but we live in a Christian environment which would criticize Paul as being insensitive to the single person. What he says is there is a great gift before you. To serve God with a devotion that other people could never understand. That's renewed thinking. There's not self-pity in it. There is love in it. Love for others. Parents, renewed thinking is going to mean we cannot listen to this world's philosophies about family idolatry and twisted views of the nature of children and their rejection of sin. That is, rejecting the idea that there is sin in them. We must learn to discern. We must learn to think, how do we raise a family? Or mates? We've got to resist this world's philosophies of marriage. It is all about being happy. And if you're not happy, something has to change quickly. Quickly. If you've run into some troubles, you may not be compatible, and divorce is always there for your freedom. We've got to think differently. Renewed thinking looks at my marriage and realizes that it is a picture and a display of the love of Christ and His church that I am to know and experience the love that presses through the trials and the difficulties, to know that on the other side of those trials is a depth of relationship and love that is beautiful and right, that marriage itself is worth fighting for because God's glory is worth fighting for. And on and on it goes. A renewed mind. As a church, we need a renewed mind. We need to think not in conformity to the world around us, which presses us to think only in business terms. How can we take care of the bottom line? How can we finish in the black? How can we grow and expand our influence? How can we serve people so that they will serve us? Now We need to think as an outpost of God's kingdom ruled by Scripture, not our world's beliefs and expectations, to be the people of God as God intended and let the results be with Him. So many areas of renewal that are necessary for us. I just sketched these briefly. But I want to turn now, just for a few more moments, to think individually. We want to think corporately but as we think corporately, to narrow in on my own thoughts. Are my thoughts being renewed? Am I being transformed to think and live and process the way that Christ intends, to live a genuinely Christian life? These are just sketchy shots, but I hope that they stimulate some conversation with you today, with one another today, and just stimulate your thinking. I don't mean to be exhausted by any means, but for a few moments, first of all, discerning what pleases the Lord will lead us certainly to resist the temporal, the fleeting, the trendy, the trivial, the shallow, the sensational, and the profane. Because our God is none of that. And as we are thinking about Him and about His truth, He is eternal and enduring. His gifts are eternal and enduring. And as citizens of a kingdom that will never be shaken, will never come to an end, how lightly should we regard the hype about trends and trivialities and shallow interests in this dying world. We're holding on here to mist. Let us know it. This world is passing away. God is not. We will cling to Him in hope as our minds are renewed to think past the fleeting and trendy and shallow and sensational. Secondly, discerning God's will will lead us to resist our culture's impatient demand to have everything now, to fix everything immediately, and to wait on nothing and no one. By our standards, God is slow, is He not? And we must learn to wait on Him patiently, to wait on Him prayerfully, to know that as we wait upon God in prayer, this is good and acceptable and perfect waiting for His provision in His own good time. We must not tap the world's conviction that it can solve everything by forceful, aggressive ingenuity. That doesn't mean we should be lazy. It doesn't mean we should avoid responsibility. But as we're renewing our mind to think God's thoughts, we'll be patient and prayerful. Thirdly, discerning what pleases the Lord will steer us clear of our world's materialistic greed and consumeristic demands. Our culture teaches us that we are what we buy. That attaining the right products and possessions defines our worth. We're told that getting is better than giving, and giving to yourself is better than sacrificing for others. If we're not being molded into that way of thinking, it's going to stand out. Our world teaches that wearing the right clothes and purchasing the right toys and acquiring the dream property, driving the desired status symbol, and retiring to do nothing is all satisfying. It's the way that you'll find pleasure and worth. Our world teaches that anxiety and fear in the face of economic hardship is justifiable because our life consists in the abundance of our possessions. But learning to think distinctively in a Christian way, a renewal of mind realizes that life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions, but in possessing a relationship with Christ and laying up treasures in heaven, which will be there forevermore. Distinctly Christian life points us in the opposite direction of this world. Transformed thinking realizes that God is the owner of everything. That we are His stewards. That we must never worry about wealth. We must never envy others. We must never consider retirement as life's ultimate goal. A renewed mind. Number four, discerning God's will leads us to resist our world's emphasis on amusement and entertainment that glorifies sin and is fueled by fleshly desire. We won't watch. If we're being renewed in our minds and not being conformed to this world, we will not watch what everyone else watches because everyone else is watching it. We won't do it. We'll not listen to what everyone else listens to because it's popular. We will handle our electronic devices and social media pronouncements in a decidedly different manner than does the world. We will say no to lustful passions and emotional reactionary impulses on the internet. We're going to live differently. We're going to think differently as our body is given to the Lord. We're going to say no When the world says yes, and yes when the world says no, many, many times. Not always, but often. And we will never see as the determining factor, I like it. The Christian recognizes that that is no argument for anything. I like it. We recognize that there's so much more to it. Number five, discerning God's will leads us to resist, will certainly lead us to resist our world's infatuation with celebrity and image. Our media presses upon us the icons of our world, the superstars of the age. They are everything. And we then turn to social media where we can make ourselves our own superstar and control our image before others we think. I think most of it we just look silly. But we fool ourselves to think I'm really looking good to other people. Learning to think biblically and discerningly will place a humility into our soul that will turn much of that in a very different direction. Into one that says social media exists for the glory of God alone. Not for any other reason. And that's how I'll use it, by God's grace, for the glory of God alone. It means uh, certainly that I will share family experiences. I will talk about life that God has given us and the joys that are there, but I will not use anything for my own promotion. I will use it all for the glory of God. We will think differently if our minds are being renewed. It will fill us with a courage that dampens reverence for celebrities and power brokers as we look back to the larger world. It will say to our very soul, I am a child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This athlete, this musician, this governmental official, this president, this whatever is peanuts compared to knowing Christ. I'm not moved by any of that if I'm thinking God's way. So Christian, what does a Christian life look like we'll be learning the rest of our lives? But it looks much like this. By the mercies of God, to every day be presenting your body as a living sacrifice that is holy, set apart from the world to God, and acceptable to God as our rational, spiritual way of worship in life. It means to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds that by testing, we learn to discern what is the will of the Lord, that will which is good and acceptable and perfect. Anything else is not really the Christian life. What are you living? What am I living? Lord, aid us, This is a time when we must come to repentance, to see ourselves in our weakness and in our failure, but also to discern the wonder of life in Christ, the joy that we have to know that there comes from you a wisdom that is not of this world and that has been tested by your people over and over again as the nations rage And shake their fist in Your face and continue to experience the emptiness and the misery and the warfare that comes from man's philosophies and ideas. We praise You that there is a kingdom that will never fall. There is a Christ who will reign forever, whose blood has been shed for our redemption, and whose wisdom has been granted to us In the books of the New Testament, in fulfillment of the books of the Old Testament, in a story of God's people that have lived against a world that has been bent to crush and kill and despise. Lord, we thank you for the goodness and the beauty of this life in Christ. And I pray that we would learn as a church and each of us as individuals to live it with distinction. For the glory of your name and for the joy of our souls in Jesus, in whose name we pray.